0: That may be spoken audibly to by your Spirit give us understanding in the deep things of God, and we're grateful in His name. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 and following. For to this you were also called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, did not revile in return, when He suffered, He did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I think most of you are aware I read from the New King James. I am not addicted to the King James, but I do prefer it because of its poetic flow of language. There are other good translations, but... This one lends itself, in my view, to uh, memorization simply by repetitive reading like no other translation. All right, there are two things in this text that I wanted to emphasize this morning. And we've talked a great deal about uh, Peter's emphasis being to the circumcision. That is to say, his ministry uh, was to the Jew. Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, once again, I remind you, said that his ministry, that is Paul's, was to the uh, uncircumcision, as was Peter's to the circumcision. So everything that Peter is writing, he's writing to these Christian Jews that are scattered abroad, and so he uses terminology that the Jews were accustomed to. And you've probably taken note of this, but it's just one of those interesting little highlights to me of how the ministers of the New Testament adopted themselves to the culture uh, to which they were speaking. Now, uh, I ha- hasten to say at this point, they in no way diminished the gospel that they were preaching. Paul said, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And what Paul meant by that was that he adopted himself to the culture of the people. He in no way ever compromised the truth that he was preaching or changed his uh, moral lifestyle in order to accommodate them, but simply moved within the sphere of their culture. If I may be forgiven extending this a little bit, uh, somewhat out of where we're We are. This was true of J. Hudson Taylor. When Hudson Taylor went to China in the earliest days, uh, he found early as he went over there that if he was to minister to the Chinese, he had to, as much as is possible, become a Chinaman. And so he adopted the the, uh, dress of the Chinese, the hairstyle of the Chinese, uh, the diet of the Chinese. Uh, He did not uh, maintain Western culture going into an Eastern climate, and he did that in order to be able to Uh, by all means, uh, become all things to all men, that he might uh, by that save some. Now, Peter, of course, is remaining within that Jewish culture. And so the terminology that he's using reflects that. I wonder how many of you have taken note of the fact that the term the cross is uniquely a term which is used in the New Testament writers by the Apostle Paul. And you see it in the Gospels as it relates to the Romans. The cross was a method of Roman perse- uh, persecution, Given me the word, crucifixion, uh, 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 punishment. Thank you, couldn't get that word. It was a method of Roman punishment. It was uniquely Gentile, had absolutely nothing to do with the Jews. You recall in the earliest part of the Gospels, uh, the Jews complained that it was not, uh, I'm sorry, in the later part of the Gospels, that it was not legal for them to put a man to death. Now that wasn't true in the earlier part of Jesus' ministry. And in the course of Jesus' ministry, history tells us that that about uh, 32 A.D., then the Romans disallowed the Jews to uh, put anyone to death. And they took that prerogative to themselves. Up to that time, the Jews were permitted to stone people that violated their own culture. You recall the case of the woman taken in adultery, and they were about to execute her until Jesus intervened. But later on, they took that prerogative from the Jews, and capital punishment remained in the hands of the Romans. And so the emphasis upon the cross. And the cross, of course, was that unique method of Roman execution. And it was, of course, a very, very uh, brutal uh, <coughs> pardon me form of death. But Peter never uses that term. Because that was a term that was uniquely Gentile, and Paul uses it continually because Paul was ministering to Gentiles. But when Peter addresses the work of the crucifixion, he uses the term that's before us here, the tree. And you'll recall that Paul makes a note in Galatians chapter 3, Cursed, quoting from Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And that's what made that form of death so uniquely abominable to a Jew. Because a curse was upon anyone who died in crucifixion or hanging on a tree. There was an identification uh, with abomination in that act of death. And Deuteronomy chapter 21 elaborates on that. We'll not uh, go back there to uh, uh, run that right now. Deuteronomy 21:23 is the verse in particular if you want to uh, pursue it on your own. So what I wanted to do was to go back and cite a couple of passages in the Old Testament that I think is particularly uh, illustrative of the emphasis on the tree and why would Peter use that term. Uh, Jesus, you'll remember, is called the branch of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 11, and you can trace that through Zechariah's prophecies as well, that Jesus is in four ways the branch of the Lord. Now, we could identify him in the tree in that aspect, but you want to think of the tree as a form of, uh, of uh, crucifixion, and I, I'm sorry, of identification in sin, uh, of execution. That's a word I keep trying to chase, and I can't get it out. So if you'll come back with me, please, first of all, to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. And some of the illustrations <coughs> of that tree... Uh, are interesting. They'll preach. I'll try not to preach them, but they'll indeed preach. If you look with me, please, to Exodus uh, 15, and we'll start with about verse 21. That should carry us through the context. You forgive me on suffering whatever this is that's trying to blow in that didn't. I don't know whether the dust got here and the front didn't or what but some of you i think have experienced the same thing let's start from 22 and so moses brought israel from the red sea then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water and when they came to Marah, they could not drink drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter therefore the name of it was called Marah, which of course means bitterness and the people complained against moses saying what shall we drink and so he cried out to the lord and the lord showed him a tree And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. Now the tree, of course, is a picture of the cross that would ultimately be brought into the bitter experience. And the whole idea of bitterness has to do with Jesus' identification with our sin and with our experience. (coughs) When they came out of Egypt, you recall, they were commanded in the eating of the Passover to eat it with bitter herbs. And it pointed to the sufferings that they were going through, and that would be the context of what Peter is talking about in this first epistle. The sufferings that the Christian Jews were going through, once again persecuted because they were Jews, and persecuted because they were Christians. And so this bitterness that they were experiencing is illustrated in this, uh, the, these waters of Mara that they encountered after they came out of the land of Egypt. And I think that ought to be emphasized as well. They were already out of Egypt. They were already, judicially speaking, the people of God. But there were these continual illustrations of the cross being satisfactory for whatever experiences they were going through. So once again, Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me. Every experience of the child of God is met in the work of the cross. There is no outside uh, uh, experience or uh, pursuit that ought to be before the believer to settle any issue that's in his life. It's all found finished in the cross. And so when Moses, the Lord tells Moses to take this tree and cast it into the bitter waters, he's looking to the cross coming into the life of the believer. And once again, by which I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me. It isn't to say that you won't go through the experience, but it is to recognize that Jesus Christ himself bore not only our sins, but also our trials in his own body on the tree. By his stripes, Peter said we were healed. By his bruise, literally, that reads, uh, we were healed. And uh, again, I emphasize the context regarding the believer's suffering. So it isn't that the believer is going to be released from that experience, but it is that while he's in it, he is brought to recognize by identification with the, with the person of Christ in the cross uh, that grace is provided to endure it. I quote once again from 1 Corinthians 10:13. Uh, there is no trial taking you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful and will not suffer you to be a tried above what you're able, but will with the trial make a way to escape. When I do that, that means I'd like to finish the verse. That you might be able... To bear it. It is always that you might be able to bear it. And uh, so the uh, the, the, the uh, New Testament writer says, uh, uh, He giveth more grace. Always there is grace, as James said. Always there is grace for what the uh, believer goes through. So the illustration we have here is the cross coming into our bitter experience and making those bitter waters sweet. You know, you've all heard the expression uh, that... Uh, if you encounter a, a, a lemon experience, you make lemon juice or some other such-like expression is used. So it is with a child of God. And I appreciate Dr. A.W. Pink's comment. He said that calamity will neither make nor break a man, but it most surely will manifest him. I thought that was very good. <laughs> very good. Pardon? Manifest him. The. Uh, if I may uh, cite this personal reference, if you're forgiven, I, I noticed this when I went into the military, that uh, very often the young men who were the typical boy next door, when they got into the middle uh, military, what was really inside of them was thoroughly manifest. And I know that people have said, well, I sent my child away to college and they ruined him. No, they didn't. They just manifest him. That's all. Um, we we get into these adverse experiences and it shows up what we are and so it was with the children of Israel and they're about ready to do Moses in because they came to these bitter waters and he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. He's always bring them back to the cross and make the believer understand that if he suffered, we suffer also. It comes with the territory and it's very difficult to and I'm laboring this, I know. You forgive me, I'll go on just a moment. But it's very difficult to convince the child of God that the experience that he's in right here is a temporary. And while we know that, we don't know that. Does that make any sense? We know that, but we don't know that. Um, you know, it, we, we live our lives as though this is pretty well all there is to it. And whatever we can wring out of this life, we need to do that. In fact, the New Testament record emphasizes, the Old Testament record illustrates uh, profusely and profoundly That the child of God is only in school right now. This is a training ground for what shall come. And if we suffer with him, we reign with him. That's the ultimate end. The ultimate purpose of God is to prepare us for that reigning. And so God says he brought the children of Israel into the wilderness so that they might learn his ways. Well, he has us right now in our experiences in order that we might learn his ways. And that was... They were programmed for two years of education in learning his ways, but they didn't learn too well, so two years turned into an additional 38 and totaled 40. And, uh, well, alas, there we are. (laughs) And so he leads them on in verse 26. He said to them, I'm sorry, verse 25. And so he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them, and said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon you which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that heals you. Well, one could get national in his digression there, couldn't he? And then they came, and understand please that that is a national statement. It is not an individual statement, it's a national statement. And nations that forget God come under the curses and the judgments of God. And so he's addressing the nation of Israel as a nation. Verse 27. Then they came to Elam. Where there were twelve wells of water. And seventy palm trees. And so cam- they camped there. Now this is the re- result of coming through that bitterness. Uh, by the experience of the cross. And there are a couple of illustrations that could be brought from this. But I want to cite just very quickly. That first of all the twelve wells of water. In this place called Elam are in indicative of the avenue through which the Lord has brought us spirit and life or the Word of God water uh, speaks in the scripture of both the Spirit of God and the Word of God and they two always agree together there are several illustrations of that we don't intend to go in that direction but that's why the labor you'll recall at the tabernacle of Moses it addressed the Word of God it addressed the Spirit of God the base of the labor addressed the Old Testament it was in two parts you recall Uh, The labor itself to address the New Testament, the water of life was put into the New Testament, and so brought life to the child of God, cleansing to the child of God, and on you go with it. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So those words are identified in the water as the spirit uh, of life. Now, they came to these 12 wells of water, and all that we have in this record, with a couple of exceptions only, Luke, for example, who was a Greek, uh, came... Uh, through the Jews, uh, Dr. Charles Feinberg points out, and rightly so, that <coughs> pardon me, Israel was the, the root and the matrix of all the life that we have in the gospel. It was the avenue through which God intended to bless the world, and so he gave promise to Abraham, you'll remember. And you'll recall then when the disciples, the twelve, were sent out by twos initially, Jesus said to them, Now go not to the way of the Gentiles but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so initially when that gospel went out, it was to the Jew first. Jesus sent the twelve disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then the second time he sent the disciples out, the scripture said, he appointed other seventy also. And then he said to them, I want you to go in every village that I myself would come now you notice that broadens the command considerably and so while 12 is the signature of Israel as well as being God's number of governmental perfection and that's important we can't look at that now uh, the disciples you recall are going to set on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel the 70 the number 70 is a universal number and it points to the gospel going to the Gentiles and in this case He said it's 70 palm trees. Now, somebody tell me, what is unique about a palm tree as opposed to nearly every other tree? Well, yeah, it it does have roots, but there's something else critical to it. Ah, there you are. Every other tree is dead on the inside and alive on the outside. Whereas a palm tree is dead on the outside and alive on the inside. Now you contrast the believer with the world in that. And the world is alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. But the believer, on the other hand, Paul tells us that your old man is crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed, you should henceforth not serve sin. The believer is dead on the outside, and he's alive on the inside. Our outward man is perishing, but the inward man is renewed day by day. And so there's a very interesting suggestion here of the gospel as it would ultimately go to the Gentiles through, first of all, the Jews, and bring that water of life and bring that marvelous transforming work. And uh, if uh, you all have uh, spent much time, I, you know most of you that I came here from Florida, and so I lived around palm trees. In my view, this is a very ugly tree. I don't see it as particularly uh, attractive. And I thought to myself... When I came to understand that, that that's such an appropriate illustration of the child of God. You know, he just really isn't all that attractive on the outside. It's what's on the inside that's important. I feel a bunny pat there. Let me take it very quickly, if I may. The tabernacle that was set up in the wilderness, you recall that the outward covering of that tabernacle, the last, uh, uh, it's just called cover. It isn't even called tent. But the last layer of skins that was placed on that tabernacle were badger hides. I think it's translated in the King James, uh, well, badger skins, but it's porpoise hides properly. And uh, uh, they were quite uh, prevalent. Uh, There were a lot of them in the Red Sea, and it wasn't uncommon in that area at all, but they made their shoes out of that same material. And it addressed, first of all, the humiliation of Christ. And there was no beauty in Him that we should desire Him. Outward, Jesus Christ did not stand out prominently beyond any other man there was no beauty in him that we should desire Uh, in contrast however when you go on to the into the inside of the tabernacle it was magnificent so also the temple for that matter but the tabernacle is unique and it looks into the looks to the humiliation of the lord jesus and to our walk in this earthly tabernacle which is ultimately going to be put away so we receive a body like unto the body of his glory alright any comments or questions about that come with me to 2nd Kings we'll look at another illustration Uh, that was the goat skin that was dyed red yes the first it went uh, it went from from goat skins uh, dyed, uh, I'm sorry ram skins dyed red to goat skins, black goat skins uh, to the porpoise hide 2nd Kings 6 did I say that 2nd Kings 6. 2nd book of Kings, uh, chapter (coughs) 6. And verse 1 and following. Now this is one of those passages in the Old Testament that will preach. You can really have a good time with it. So many illustrations can be brought from it. And the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See now the place where we dwell with you, it is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let him make there a place where we may dwell. And so he answered, Go. Then one said, Please uh, consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. And so he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe fell into the water, and he cried out, saying, Alas, Master, for it was borrowed. Could I pause here to digress from what is the focus of our attention here? Uh, Here was the instrument of his success, and he lost it in the water, and he had sense enough to cry out, Alas, Master, it was borrowed. And I think, my, how that illustrates our uh, ministry in christ jesus jesus said without me you can do nothing everything that we have every success we experience is a result of the life of jesus christ it isn't ours it's his if you would alas, master it's borrowed and here this fellow in the midst of his cutting trees loses this power if you would uh... to uh... fell these trees And I can just feature, if you'll forgive me for this, I can just feature this fellow not wanting to acknowledge the fact that he'd lost this borrowed axe head, continuing to beat on the tree with an axe handle. And he would get a lot of vibration, but he'd get no chips whatsoever. And I think very often believers are like that. We lose relationship with the Lord Jesus uh, through our own willfulness, but we go on in what we're doing. Uh, trying to ignore the fact that we've lost that power and all we do is just get a lot of vibration, but we don't get any chips. It's rather like Samson, you'll recall, after he had his head shorn and uh, uh, the scripture tells us that uh, Delilah woke him up and said, uh, the Philistines are upon you and the scripture says that he shook himself as before. And you kind of get a picture of believer doing calisthenics and he wished not that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. So there are a lot of pictures that are are formed in your mind as you think about this fellow as he's felling these trees. And so off goes the axe head into the water. And then verse 6. And then the man of God said to him, where did it fall? Now I want you to notice the usage of the phrase the man of God. These are sons of the prophets who are moving their Bible school, so to speak. And uh, they wanted the man of God to go with him. Uh, without me again Jesus said you can do nothing and so we want the man of God to go with us and so the man of God said where did it fall and he showed him the place and so he cut off a stick and threw it in there and he made the iron float I think the King James reads and the iron did swim doesn't it I like that very much the iron did swim and therefore he said pick it up for yourself and so he reached out his hand and he took it and once again we're looking at the cross coming into the situation. When an individual believer finds himself out of relationship with the Lord, it isn't God's fault, it's his fault. And it's time for him to cry out, a last master was bored, uh, borrowed and called the man of God to correct the situation. And what does the man of God do? He immediately appeals to the cross, to that uh, finished work of Jesus Christ that restores relationship in the believer, never looking anywhere else but always to that cross. My, one could spend some time in the Epistle to the Hebrews here and point out how often the child of God would look to other avenues whereby he might restore his relationship with the Lord. Let's meddle for a moment, if we might, if you'll come with me to uh, uh, Hebrews in chapter 10. <coughs> I'm sorry. Let start from verse uh, 11, please. One of the problems that Paul was having with these Hebrew believers was that uh, they were still maintaining Old Testament ritual experiences to keep a right relationship with the Lord, failing to understand that in the cross all things were finished. And so from verse 11 of chapter 10, "...and every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly those same sacrifices which can never take away sin." But this man, my, you need to go through the scripture sometime and pick up on that expression as it relates to Christ. This man, this man, this man. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Uh, Surely this man was the son of God. Never man spake like this man. Those phrases are very revealing. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He offered one sacrifice for sin forever. It's only the cross that ever corrects any problem that a believer uh, faces. As uh, As an illustration of what these Jews were doing in continually offering these Old Testament sacrifices in order to maintain a right relationship with the Lord, we do the same thing. We don't go offer an animal, to be sure. But we have these religious exercises that we like to engage in, in order to keep God glad with us, if you would, When we blow it, we feel like we have to go do something that's very, and may I use the term, religious, in order to gain the Lord's favor once again. And as I use these for illustration, please do not misunderstand me. All of these things are good. We will read our Bible more. We will pray more. We'll get up earlier in the morning. We'll witness more. All of those things in order to restore what we feel is a broken relationship with the Lord. Now, all of those things are very wonderful and very necessary and things we ought to do, but they are not what restores relationship. What restores relationship is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And so whatever difficulty the believer encounters, whatever glitch in his relationship he may come to, it is only the cross that can cure that problem. Jesus Christ offered one sacrifice for sin and forever sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Alright, coming back to Second Peter, please. <clears throat> so by his stripes, through his stripes, we were healed. Whether the healing is spiritual, whether the healing is physical, it focuses on the finished work of Jesus Christ. I might uh, uh, extend this, uh, please, to the ultimate healing which is the resurrection when we put away this body of our humiliation as the apostle paul puts it it is the cross that guarantees the uh, resurrection paul tells us in romans chapter 4 he was delivered up because of our offenses and raised again because of our justification the cross of jesus christ justified us and therefore guarantees the resurrection when you're going to be loosed from that body of your present imprisonment and receive a body like unto the body of his glory. It's all focused in the cross. Am I overlaboring that point? So then, verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but have been returned unto the uh, shepherd and bishop or overseer of your soul. Uh, I want to take a bit of a parenthesis right here just for the sake of definition. The King James, I think, reads bishop of your souls. Is that correct? The word bishop in the New Testament scripture is the Greek word episkopos, and it's a combination of two words which mean to look over. Uh, Epi over and skopos, to to see or to look. We get our word scope out of it, telescope, etc. So the idea is to be an overseer in the case of a bishop. Now I'm contrasting that to the word elder. And there are some who have taught that those words are synonymous. They're really not. Uh, the uh, uh, that's why they're different words. Uh, there's always a different emphasis in a different word. Uh, I'm trying to avoid saying something, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Uh, it would be inappropriate if your wife were wearing a new perfume to say to her, what's that odor? That would be very diplomatically unwise. However, if you look up the word odor and the word uh, fragrance in the uh, dictionary, they're both going to be defined with the word smell. So the, the the different usages of word, by all means, are intended to give a different connotation in your thinking. And so it is with this word. The word overseer or bishop has the idea of one who has the responsibility to oversee the people of God. Whereas the word elder addresses the qualifications of that individual who might become an overseer. So when Paul sent Titus, you recall, to Crete, he said, ordain elders in every city. Find men who are qualified men. Find men who are elders. And then you put them into the office of a bishop. And so Paul refers to that in 1 Timothy 3, you'll remember. If any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. And so the elder is the man, the office, uh, I'm sorry, the, the bishop or overseer is the office. The elder is what the man is in terms of qualification. The overseership is what he does because he's qualified. And so the Apostle Peter is telling us that Jesus Christ is that prime overseer. He is the chief bishop. People talk to me about head elders and chief elders and I say, yes, Jesus Christ is the only chief elder. I'll let that alone, Virgil. For you were like sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Now, in what sense is Jesus the shepherd? Well, we say, well, goodness, he's looking after us and we're the sheep. Yes, well, that's true. Let's go back and find out, look at some passages that that emphasize that. First of all, John chapter 10. Well, uh, you can turn to these if you want to. I want to go through them for time's sake. In John chapter 10, And verse 11, Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd. Now, in that context, the good shepherd is defined as doing a particular thing. Someone want to suggest to us what is it? Exactly, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So when you talk about the Lord Jesus being the good shepherd, you're talking about that one who dies for the sheep. And if you want a parallel to that, look with me, please, and keep your finger there in one Peter. but come back with me to the book of Psalms and Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Most familiar to you, to be sure. One and following. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And quite obviously the Lord Jesus quoted that passage when he was hanging on the cross when suddenly the heavens became black And the father turned his back on the son the first time in eternal history when the father broke fellowship with the son and Jesus for the first time in eternal history called his father God. That's noteworthy. My God, not my father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It wasn't that the Lord Jesus had ceased to be God or was any less deity than he was before, as some unfortunately have taught. But rather that for the first time in the Godhead, fellowship was broken between the Father and the Son. And Jesus Christ died spiritually as well as he was about to die physically. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, My God, I cry to thee in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season, and I am not silent. Look at some of the uh, descriptions that are uh, given with regard to this uh, death. Uh, Verse 6. But I am a worm and no man. My, a lot of funny path there. Uh, you all are uh, familiar with the hymn. Uh, would you devote your sacred head for such a worm as I? I mentioned to the congregation here some several weeks back uh, that that has been changed in some hymnals now to read uh, for sinners such as I. And I was informed the other by, day by a very dear brother that a new edition of Hymnal has come out. Uh, now it reads for people such as I. We always ease the pain, don't we? I mean, we, we constantly want to see ourselves better than we are. And, and each time I read this verse, I think of that. Jesus Christ was willing to be what he was not. And we're not willing to be what we are. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Well, I won't labor that anymore. Psalm 22 is the record of the dying shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, the second aspect is to be found in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Now may God, the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And while we're here, I want to emphasize again, you'll notice that he was brought again from the dead because of the shedding of the blood. That's why the the uh, emphasis in uh, Romans chapter 4 is so important. He was delivered up for or because of our offenses. He was raised again for or because of our justification. And so Hebrews thirteen twenty addresses the great shepherd of the sheep And that's the resurrection shepherd. And since I have you in the book of Psalms, we'll look at Psalm 23. And while Psalm 22 is the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep, Psalm 23 is the great shepherd who has been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And thus the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And Psalm 23, of course, addresses Jesus Christ as our great intercessor at the right hand of the Father. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. That was not true in the Old Testament. That was not true under the old covenant economy before the cross. If I may labor this point a moment. Isaiah chapter 1, passage familiar to you, I know. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like, uh, say as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be that's verse 18. Verse 19 reads Isaiah 1: If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. That was the old covenant economy. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. But what's the new covenant economy? It is God that works in you to make you. Willing and obedient to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that's the message of Psalm 23. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I will fear no evil. Now, verse 4. For you're with me, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What's suggested in the rod and the staff? May I uh, offer a suggestion to you? Call it lamology if you would. The rod is the Old Testament and the staff is the new. The rod addressed chastening and of course the Old Testament abounds with the records of chastening. The New Testament addresses the staff and the staff was for rescuing. Indeed he has. So verse 6, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life for I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because our great high priest is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. All right. One other verse, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, we'll hop over there and steal it from the lesson to come. Let me read from 3, I'm sorry, from 2. To the elders which are among you, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by, uh, uh, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So we've gone from the good shepherd who dies for the flock, to the great shepherd who is raised again to the right hand of the Father, to the chief shepherd who appears in glory. The chief Shepherd then is the second coming Shepherd and back to the Psalms once again and Psalm 24 the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein Psalm 24 is the psalm of the second coming Shepherd Psalm 22 is the psalm of the dying Shepherd Psalm 23 of the ascended Shepherd and Psalm 24 the second coming shepherd so 1 peter 5 4 addresses the chief shepherd of the sheep as he anticipates the day when he'll return in power and great glory we could read a little farther in the psalm Um, well it's it's all good let's pick up from verse 2 he has founded it upon the seas established it upon the waters who may ascend into the hill of the lord and who may stand in his holy place He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul unto idols nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. He anticipates the day even in this psalm when Israel as a nation will once again turn their hearts to him, pointing to his second coming position. Then verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates and be lifted up the everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is the king of glory the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle lift up your heads O you gates lift up be lifted up the everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is the king of glory the lord of hosts he is the king of glory now i've got another passage i want to cite to yet further emphasize this if you'll go with me to the prophet ezekiel i'll throw in a little bit of of uh, prophecy, if I may, here. Be ye lifted up. We just read in Psalm 24, "Ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in." Now again, in the context of verse six, it's the it's the generation of Jacob that seeks his face. Are you at uh, Ezekiel 44, verse one and following? Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. How many of you have been to Israel? A few of you here, I know you have. Uh, those of you who haven't been there, have doubtless seen uh, photographs taken from the Mount of Olives toward the Temple Mount, uh, where now is the uh, uh, Dome of the Rock. And as you look at those uh, the walls uh, between you and the Temple Mount, there's a gate there. Yes? Something interesting about that gate. What is it? It's walled up. It's sealed. What did we just read? He brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary. That's that same gate. The outer gate of the sanctuary was called the eastern gate. It was accessed from the Mount of Olives to the temple area. And when Jesus, before he was crucified, exited the city of Jerusalem, he went out through that gate. When he came back in on what we call Palm Sunday and was crucified, he came in through that gate. And that gate then was sealed. When was it sealed? It was sealed when the Ottoman Empire took over and the Turks conquered that area of the world. The walls were destroyed prior to that time. And when they took over, they rebuilt those walls. And Omar was uh, intending to restore that gate. And in the middle of his reign, when it was being built, he said, seal it off. Now, historically, I don't know that I can tell you reason for why he said seal it off, but he said seal it off. But biblically, I can tell you why, because God said it will be shut, and it goes on to explain why, and it is shut to this day. Verse two. <coughs> Sorry. And the Lord said to me, "This gate shall be shut; it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered by it." That's a reference to the entrance of the Lord Jesus by that gate before his crucifixion. Therefore it shall be shut. It is for the prince. The prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. That gate is going to remain shut until such time as the king of glory comes. And Psalm 24 again reads, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. That's a prophecy of the entrance of the Lord Jesus when his feet touch, according to Zechariah's prophecy, on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives cleaves in the midst. And there shall be a very great earthquake, the scripture says. He will enter by that gate. Now, I will not suggest to you that that gate may not be opened for him Uh, prior to the earthquake but if it isn't open for him prior to the earthquake most surely will be opened by the earthquake and he will enter through that gate. Any comments or questions? So Psalm 22 is the good shepherd Psalm 23, uh, 23 is the great shepherd and Psalm 24 is the chief shepherd the one is the dying shepherd the second is the resurrected ascended shepherd and the third is the second coming shepherd. So Peter says You were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. God has you covered. We're going to stop there. I'm not going to try to get into another section and lesson this morning. Any comments or questions? He's a grand savior, isn't he? My, what an understatement. All right, we'll pray together. Father, make real, we pray to us, those things which you've accomplished.